Amen. Hey, grab your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, even pull it up on a phone. I just want you to have God's Word in front of you this morning, Ephesians chapter uh, 1. While you turn there, uh, let me show you a, a picture. Maybe when you were a kid, you would do these, uh, these magic eye pictures. Uh, uh, I, you would, you know, go cross-eyed or just stare, kind of blank out, stare at them, and uh, allegedly they would have some hidden image in them. And I remember as a kid being in a classroom or on a field trip, and all the kids got around and everyone's like, oh, I see it, I see it. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. uh, I don't see it. I, 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 never, I never could see the whole magic eye, the image within the greater picture of these posters here. Um, um, but uh, apparently once you see it, you can't not see it. Once you see the image, you can't not see the image. Um, I, I start with that to say, uh, last week, as we jumped into the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul wasted no time jumping right into some of the deepest doctrine that we'll find in all of the scriptures. He, he basically said, I want you to know all that is yours, all the riches of the heavenly blessings that are yours in Christ. And then boom, in one wonderfully worshipful, long run-on sentence, he just says, let me unpack for you all that is yours in Christ. Uh, it is, you know, quite arguably the most doctrinally rich sentence we will find in all of the Bible. So rich that one of my preaching heroes, the late great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached what I preached last week in 40 minutes in 26 sermons. Same content, a half a year's worth of sermons. That's how rich this is. And now, we must do the hard work of good doctrinal study. We must dive deeply into it. We must read good resources on it. We have to do that work, but that's not enough. Just getting a deep head knowledge of it is not enough. And Paul knows that. And so right after he put a period on that first sentence of the body of his letter, he begins one more sentence that we're going to study here today, just one sentence that we're going to study here again. And in this sentence, he's going to pray for something. Now, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see that. Paul's going to give a prayer today, and the, uh, the readers in Ephesus, the readers in the other towns that may have read this letter, and us today, we need this prayer. Lord, you have to open our eyes so that we can see all the doctrinal riches that are ours in Christ, because apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see these things, we just can become big doctrinal fatheads with no impact on our heart. And that's not at all what God is going after. And so the very next sentence in this letter is Paul's prayer. And in his prayer, he's going to ask, would you open the eyes of their heart? And then he's going to tell us why. Here is why I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be open, so that you will know three very, very important things. Because here's the deal. God desires us to know that we know some things about what it means to be in Christ. He doesn't want us always wondering, always waffling, always doubting. Maybe this is true. Maybe this is not true. He wants us to know that we know that we know the truths of what it means for us to be in Christ. And so Paul's going to pray, open their eyes. And in opening their eyes, Lord, I pray that they would know these three things. So let's ask God to open our eyes as we study it here today. Father, we do need your help. Uh, these things are not a matter of us just of us just trying to be good studiers of your word. We need to do that, Lord, but we need the help of your Holy Spirit so that we don't just understand things in our head, but so that we see it with the eyes of our heart. 
And so God, we ask for your help now as we walk through your word. Would your spirit illuminate? Would it enlighten? Would you open our eyes? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. <clears throat> Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's what he's praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of what? Of wisdom and of and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Why is he praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts, what? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so uh, remember, one long, wonderfully worshipful, doctrinally rich sentence in which Paul is unpacking here, here is all that is yours all of the blessings in Christ in the heavenly places that is yours. Now, next sentence, for this reason, for what reason, Paul? For everything in which I've just written, all of that deep, wonderful doctrine, for this reason, now I'm praying something for you. Paul, what are you praying? I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of what? So that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. I pray that God would give you wisdom now so that you can see with your hearts everything that I've just written is yours in Christ. I pray you'll see it with your heart eyes. I pray you'll see it with your heart. Here is Paul's prayer summarized very simply. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Or said differently, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. That's Paul's prayer here. That's Paul's prayer. Lord, you have to open the eyes of their heart so they can see the riches of all that is theirs in Christ. And because Paul knew something, and he knows something that you and I both know. He knows it's possible for us to know doctrinal facts in our head without it ever sinking into the depths of our heart. Yeah, how, how do we know this? Um, we know this when we hear the testimony, and I've shared many times, this is my testimony, in which I grew up in the church, I knew all sorts of things about Jesus, all sorts of things about the church. In fact, if you put a quiz on Jesus in front of me as a 15-year-old, I'm confident I could have gotten an A- minus on it. Uh, I'm confident that I could have uh, walked you through the technical, uh, you know, Romans road. I could have technically gotten right the gospel. But it wasn't until 19 when Jesus opened the eyes of my heart and I saw him for the Lord that he was. That's way different. Head knowledge versus the eyes of our hearts open to see it. You know it when you're reading through the scriptures. And when you find yourself in a book of the Bible or a verse or a passage in the Bible that you have read maybe dozens or hundreds of times, but for some reason that morning or that night or that worship service, when you hear that passage, it's like you're hearing it for the first time. It's like your whole life you have saw it or you heard it, but you didn't really see it. And now God opens the eyes of your hearts to see it. For me, one of the most powerful instances of that was I was on a uh, Lake Michigan beach, early spring, uh, cold, brisk morning. I'm reading by the water, and I get to 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and it was like I had never read it before in my life. 
I had read it dozens of times, but it was like I had never read it, that God opened my eyes to see what it meant that Jesus was the propitiation for my sin, that the full wrath of the Father was poured out on him. Not one ounce of it was left for me. It was like my heart saw it for the first time. You know it when you're worshiping and you come across a line and you've sang the line a hundred times, but for some reason that morning, God opens the eyes of your heart to see it. And your heart worships and exults over it. And joy fills you. It's one thing to know things in our head. But Paul, as he comes down to this prayer, he says, I want you to know what I'm praying for you. And he doesn't say, I'm not just, he doesn't say, hey, I'm praying that you you understand it. No, he says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That God would open the eyes of your heart so that you see it. Now, when the eyes of our hearts are open, Paul's gonna argue we'll know some things. And we'll know that we know some things. And we'll know that we know that we know some things. And we'll know, no, I'm kidding. Uh, He really wants us to, with bedrock assurance, know these things are true. So, All of this rich doctrine of all that is ours in Christ, God, open the eyes of their hearts so that they will know these things. Paul, what what will we know when the eyes of our hearts are open? Verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And so the prayer is, we're joining with Paul in this prayer for our own hearts, open the eyes of our heart, Lord, so that so we know the hope we've been called to. It, it, it is one thing as we look, okay, we, we gotta ask, what's the hope we've been called to? It's everything Paul had been unpacking in that first sentence. That you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That he predestined you for adoption as sons. That he's redeemed you and he's purchased you with his own blood and forgiven you for all your trespasses in the purchasing and redeeming of you. And that he's given you inheritance that he's sealed with his promised Holy Spirit. And this promised Holy Spirit acts as a guarantor, a guarantee until you arrive in possession of that inheritance. He goes, that's all the hope you have in Christ. And he goes, you, you can't just try to factually understand that. God, I pray Open their heart eyes so they see that. Isn't that our prayer? God, open the eyes of our heart so we actually see it because when we know that hope, it changes everything. When we know that hope and see it with the eyes of our heart, it doesn't only change everything about what we're hoping for one day, it changes everything about how we live now in the day today. What do I mean? If we truly know the hope that is ours in Christ, it changes the way we respond to all the little things that can happen in a week that get us all bent out of shape. So last Sunday, I'm standing up here and I'm trying my best to exposit the riches of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And together, we're worshiping over these things. And then after church, I just wanted to accomplish one thing with my day, and that was to get my lawn mowed. My mower had been in, there's a point to the story, I promise. My mower had been in the shop for three weeks. 
Um, my mower next to this sanctuary is the secondary sanctuary of my life. People are like, you probably hate mowing for two and a half hours. I'm like, I got a six-year-old, four-year-old, and two two-year-olds. I love mowing for two and a half hours. And so like my mower had gotten back before the weekend and I'm like, man, I'm gonna preach Ephesians chapter one and I'm gonna go home, eat a lunch, hop on my mower, put the earbuds in and zoom, baby. And so I go home, I sit on my mower, turns on, praise the Lord. PTO switch engages the mower, praise the Lord. I get 15 minutes into my mow, same thing happens. And so a few hours before, I'm expounding the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. <laughs> a few hours later, I'm flat out ticked sitting on the seat of a mower with very uncharitable thoughts towards those who repaired it. <laughs> the reality is, no matter what inconveniences or hardships or, in, or, 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 or misgivings happen in my week, if I would actually believe all that is mine in Christ and the hope that I have, I could have sat on a mower seat in that moment and go, praise the Lord, it's broken, but I'm chosen before the foundation of the world. I say that in jest, but there's truth to that, right? All right, my mower's broke. I got Jesus. I know where I'm going. I know what he's given me. When we know the hope that we've been called to, changes the little day-to-days that can get us all bent out of shape. When we know the hope to what he's called to, it drastically affects the way we live in Christian community. What do I mean? Uh, last Monday at our discipleship group, one of the couples, dear friends, been in our group for so long, they said, hey guys, this, this could be the last night we're moving to the West Coast. And so you know how those nights are. You're so excited for them, but you're so sad to see good friends move. And um, we were walking out that night with them and we were, Erica and I were hopping in our car and they were getting in their car over here. And I said, hey, we'll see you guys soon. And the husband, almost like out of jest, but, but with a sense of truth to it, he says, I'll see you in heaven. And I sat down in the car and I was like, oh my goodness, we have every intention of seeing them again, but what if we never see them again this side of heaven? And then the secondary thought, even if we don't, we'll be with them forever in heaven, forever that if I say goodbye to good friends and they move to the West Coast, and even if we never see them again, for billions and billions and billions of years, we'll hang out and worship Jesus. That changes the way we understand Christian community. It changes the way, if we really knew the hope to which we've been called in Christ, it changes the way we suffer that I think all of us read a verse like Romans 8.18, which says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we know the hope, we actually believe that. As deep, hard, and painful as the current sufferings are, when we know the hope, we actually believe this is nothing compared to the joy of what will be. And so Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart are opened or enlightened so that you'll know the hope to which you have been called. But there's another thing he wants them to know in the eyes of their heart being open. 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened, I'm back in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we gotta do some Bible study here. We gotta make, a tra- we gotta make a interpretive decision. Is this inheritance the inheritance that God is getting? Namely, the saints are his, his inheritance and he's inheriting the saints. Some people interpret that this way. Others interpret, no, this is the inheritance that God is giving. This is the inheritance that God is giving to the saints. I believe in the flow of the passage, that's the interpretation here. I can send you more. Email me if you want more of why I believe that, but I believe this is unpacking the inheritance that God is giving in the saints or to the saints. And I want you to see how the inheritance is described. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so Paul's saying this, open the eyes of our heart, Lord, so we know the glorious inheritance we have in the saints. This isn't the first time that Paul has brought up this idea of an inheritance. As we came to the end of the sentence right before this, in verse 11, he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we have an inheritance. And the inheritance is a good inheritance. This is a rich inheritance. This is a glorious inheritance. Namely, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we inherit Christ. He is the gold mine of the inheritance. All of the benefits that come from knowing and walking with Christ are just that. They're benefits. But Jesus himself is the goal of the inheritance, is the gold of the inheritance. And so he says, open the eyes of their hearts so they'll know this inheritance, that through faith, you have Jesus, Jesus has made you alive, he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit, and he's holding you until you see this inheritance full and final with your own eyes. Then he, he tags something on the end there that I think is really interesting. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the What? In the saints, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Do you want to know the only thing that can make receiving an inheritance, you want to know the only thing that makes receiving an inheritance better? Is receiving it together. Rejoicing in it together. The fact that this inheritance that we have in Christ is not something that I just get to individually celebrate. You know when you see a team win a championship? What, is their, what does their heart instinctively do after a team wins in championship? They celebrate together. Number six here, he sold out, man. He's like, I'm going for it. Someone's about to get crushed. Imagine if the next time you watched a team win a championship, they all ran to their respective corners and they were celebrating individually. How, we would be like, what are they doing? The beauty of this inheritance in Christ is that it's not only mine and it's not only yours, it's ours. And so every time we gather in corporate worship, we're gathering to sing to this awesome inheritance that we have together. And in every time we get in a living room and gather around God's word in a discipleship group, we're gathering for the worship of this inheritance together. 
And every time we invite another Christian over, another Christian family over, and we sit at a dining room table, we're rejoicing in the inheritance that we have together. What makes it awesome is that it's an inheritance in Christ. What makes it awesomer is that we inherit together. To illustrate this, and and I want to wade into this carefully because I know this probably has affected some of you, and I want to be gentle with this, but to illustrate this, how many times have we seen from an earthly perspective an inheritance divide a family? Where the inheritance has been handed down and instead of, instead of siblings rejoicing in the inheritance and rejoicing in it together, one's like, well, I wanted the tractor. You can all tell where I'm from, redneck inheritance, okay? <laughs> what, are you, what are we gonna do with dad's old dang old Peterbilt semi there? What I want to say just gently is, hey, shut up. You're inheriting the joy of a gift being passed down, and not just the joy of a gift being passed down, the joy of collectively you inheriting this, rejoice in it. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then he's got more. I want the eyes of your hearts open so you'll know the hope that you've been called to. You'll know the inheritance that is yours in Christ. And the third thing he wants them to know is this. So we can know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Verse 19 And what is the immeasurable, let me read it all together, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul says, when the eyes of our hearts can see all these doctrinal riches that are ours in Christ, you will know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, I want you to think about the, um, uh, the ironic nature of that sentence, the counterintuitive nature of that sentence. If something is immeasurable, what does that mean? It can't be, you can't measure something immeasurable. And so Paul says, I want your heart eyes open that you would be able to know the immeasurable power of God, that you would know something that can't even be measured, his power. Now, I'll tell you, the most powerful human being that I've ever been around is Pastor Corey. I share an office with him, and daily I make it a goal to never offend a man of that size of that power. (laughs) One of the things that um, I have taken on as the responsibility as the lead pastor of this church is to try to wrestle Pastor Corey every week. And the day I beat Pastor Corey in a wrestling match, I'm gonna retire from life, okay? And so uh, one day I knew Corey was coming down the hallway, and so I hid in a doorway like this, and as he hit the hallway, I turned, I sprinted, and I tried to take him out at the legs. What I'm about to share is truth. Nearly without breaking, uh, breaking his stride, he picked me up by the waist, put me on his shoulders, and carried me <laughs> down the hallway. 
The next thing I have planned is I've asked if Pastor Corey would suit up in full football gear. I will too. I'll be the ball carrier. He'll be the tackler, and we're going to have a tackling drill. Pastor Mark has yet to approve this because someone's going to get hurt, and that someone is Corey, okay? And so Corey's the most powerful human being I've ever been around, but the reality is we could put a bench press on the stage, or put a, a squat rack on the stage, and we could add weights until we exhaust Corey's power. Every other person, every other being, every other thing has a limit to their power. God has no limit to his powers. You can't measure it. You can't exhaust it. And so he's saying, I pray that you would know the immeasurable, that you would know, that you would know it in your heart, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. But we should ask a question here. Paul, how in the world do we begin to even know something that is immeasurable? Like, how can you even begin to know what, on, what in the world the power of God looks like? Paul says, oh, you can know. Watch this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He was said, do you want to see the immeasurable power of God at work? Look at the might that he worked in the son of God, Jesus Christ, to raise him from the dead and to seat him in the seat of authority at his right hand. If you want to see the father's power, look for it displayed in the son. This is where Paul's going now in this sentence. He says, do you want to know what the might of God looks like? Look at how he worked it out in Christ. And what does he say here? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's power. I mean, none of us walked in here today going, hey, what'd you do last night? We ate at Johnson's barbecue, and then I raised a guy from the dead. It was crazy. None of us say that. Look at the might of God at work in the father raising the son from the dead, but not just in raising him from the dead. He raised him from the dead, continue in verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Christ is not only alive, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is the seat of power and authority, and now Paul goes into the implications of what it means that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. You want to see what those are? What does it mean where we see the power of God at work in the Son of God that he is at his right hand? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus Christ is above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. All of us in this room are subject to someone or something. All of us in this room are under authority, most of us in multiple facets of our life. The most powerful ruler on this earth, the most powerful men and women who live are under some kind of authority. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and all rule, power, authority, and dominion are his. He's subject to no other king. There is no Lord higher than him. So he's at the right hand of the Father, 
of far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is no name above the name of Jesus. There is no name greater than Jesus. Name the big names throughout history. The people that get shelf space in the biography section of Barnes and Noble. Rockefeller, Carnegie, Churchill, Edison, Einstein, Jordan, Montana, Musk, Bezos, LeBron, Trump, Obama, Brady, Manning, Tom Cruise, Taylor Swift, Tom Hanks. They're nothing compared to the name of Jesus. Every big name is nothing compared to the name of Jesus. He is the name above all names, and guess what? It says, uh, and he always will be. He always has been, he always will be. There is no one from the past, there is no one in the present, there is no one coming who will be above the name of Jesus. So he has all power, rule, and authority. He is the name above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come, verse 22. And, and God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. All things are under the feet of Jesus. The servant king who got down and washed feet now has all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. This isn't our church, y'all. We're pumped to move into that sending base facility in six years. Guess what? That's Jesus's. This is his church. We are his body. We are his. And this little local expression of it we call Redeemer Bible Church is part of this grand picture of this big thing called the global church. And so right now while we're meeting here, Believers are gathered down the road at Friendship Church and down the road farther at Greenwood Christian Church and down the road farther at Emmanuel Church and down the road farther at Stones Crossing Church and up at Mount Pleasant and up at Life Point and over at Cross Point and at City Life and, and I could just keep going and all of us together are gathered in local expressions to make much of the Chief Shepherd and the King of Kings and the ultimate pastor that is Jesus Christ. This is his church. And we're gathered all over the globe today to celebrate that reality. And Paul is making a point here. Do you want to see the immeasurable greatness? Look at it in the might God poured out to raise the son from the dead, to seat him at his right hand, far above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. He is the name above every name and always will be. All things are at his feet. And he is beautifully head over this thing called the church, which are my people called out for my glory. And Paul is saying, God, open the eyes of their heart. And we're saying today, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Why? So that we know the hope that we've been called to. And so we know the inheritance that is ours in Christ and so that we can know, that we can even begin to know this immeasurably great power that you have worked toward us. And so by way of just closing this message and by way of us praying this together, I just want us to sing these words together, open the eyes of our heart, that we would make this our prayer, that God would... Help our hearts see these truths so that we'll know them in the depths of our being. 
And as we sing these things, as our prayer coming out of this passage, let's also sing them in a way that prepares our heart for the taking of communion. Jesus' body broken for us, Jesus' blood shed for us, of him being laid in a tomb and then rising victoriously. We want to remember his sacrifice on our behalf. So let's sing this as our prayer together.